ora, hello comrades. This is just a bonus episode on some recent developments in the USA, Australia and Aotearoa New Zealand. To start with, the following was written by Derek Johnson on the recent US election, which I'm sure you've all been anxiously following. Despite openly orchestrated voter suppression and the surging pandemic, Americans have turned out in record numbers to vote. Trump gave a speech late on election night, declaring himself the winner before all the states were in. The GOP's base under Trump have become a fascist death cult, worshipping Trump as a messiah, like a Roman dictator and fanatic QAnon the religion. They are no longer conservatives, they are fascist revanchists who no longer believe in democracy, because they know they cannot win fairly, and their policies are so unpopular. Trump and the GOP, all the way up to the Supreme Court, have announced intentions to carry out a coup, they are carrying it out state by state in the courts, and they have sabotaged the post office. People must knock off their denial that there is fascism, and their partisan political equivocation, and organize. I would say to people who claim that voting Biden is an illusion, and he is actually more dangerous, because the left has a history of being impotent and inactive against Democrat governments, are enabling fascism at this point, by parroting fascist propaganda that liberals and centrists are a bigger threat than fascists. I would question their solidarity with minorities. Trump is a fascist. He has enabled a COVID genocide, that would have never gotten to this point under Clinton, or any competent administration. Nobody cares about Biden slash Harris coming in to do anything about this pandemic. We must posture online and own the libs at all costs. This is a genocide, based on how it's allowed to target vulnerable marginalized groups and the poor, making the choice of who gets to die neo-eugenics. Democide if you want to be pedantic. Over 200,000 plus dead, and rising, is enough, and 1,000 a day is unacceptable, yet not only are Republicans fine with that, but Trump got 5 million more voters than 2016. The majority of the population supports masks, social distancing, testing, and quarantines, and were being forced to risk their lives in an election while trying to mostly vote through the mail, while Trump's corrupt postmaster general openly sabotaged the postal system. Liberal democracies are doomed if fascism can be allowed on the ballot. White people will vote for white supremacy if given the chance. America has 20% fascists among the population at any given time. Trump won on a minority, because of the electoral college historically rooted in favoring slave states. He only had 40% of the voting population, in a country of hundreds of millions and was never able to get to or above 50% the whole four years. Counting non-voters, he only got 25% of the population. You can vote against the fascist because he was clearly voted in, and people did, 
twice. The first time failed, but the second miraculously spared us. The voter turnout was massive, if not the largest in history, with Biden winning the most votes of any candidate in history, but the race was still far too tight. We will never know how many ballots were disappeared by GOP disenfranchisement. We are reaching a point of no return for the planet and all species on it. What good are marginalized or indigenous rights on a burnt toxic heap? We'll get to say we refused to stop it in the wasteland. The left elsewhere looks at us like assholes for doing nothing about Trump and being anti-voting absolutists. How much time on the left was wasted denying the fascism? Now we have vigilante paramilitaries working with federal secret police and regular pigs to kill us in the streets, or snatch us into unmarked vans. Antifa is being built up as an international terrorist group, as is BLM. Do you want to be arrested for protesting, or disappeared and mysteriously hanged? Trump has been setting himself up for a dictatorship, and the GOP is planning permanent one-party rule, but why the Democrats? Why neoliberalism? All I see on the left in the USA is white leftists, willing to throw my queer black ass under a fascist steamroller. It looks like general strike time soon. Jacobin wasted DSA's time supporting Bernie Sanders, rather than preparing, and we're not alone. We should have been training for one this whole time in IWW, rather than getting bogged down by conservative dirtbag leftist members. Shame on those bougie fucks, for denying fascism and wasting our time. The Wobservatives who were anti-community self-defense, their argument against anti-fascist community organizing was that non-state neo-Nazi-slash-fash-street gangs were not the threat, only police and the state. Well, these paramilitaries and gangs are working with police, and are in the police, there is a Trump-loyal secret federal police, and now we have a fascist president using power of state to criminalize dissent as sedition. Sedition trials crushed the IWW decades ago. The anti-protest law Florida Governor Ron DeSantis wants to apply RICO laws to protesters and organizers, and legalize fash who run over protesters. Once a tactic of ISIS, white supremacists going back to Heather Heyer have utilized vehicles to murder protesters. Cars have hit demonstrators 104 times since George Floyd protests began. The pipeline protests, and J20 arrests, were a dry run. We need to get millions in the streets, and refuse to work, before it's illegal. Right-wing extremists have killed 329 victims in the last 25 years, while Antifa members haven't really killed any. According to a recent study, maybe one technical killing reciprocated by an extrajudicial assassination by U.S. Marshals. It's not about defending Biden or Dems, it's about fighting a fascist coup that will end what democracy we enjoy in this nation, 
which will lead to totalitarianism and collapse, something we cannot survive, and stop any chances for tackling the pandemic, mass homelessness, political imprisonment slash assassinations by pigs and fash, fixing climate change, healthcare, and it will leave the weakest of us in ashes. What's to stop civil war and Scotus undoing the achievements of the 20th century, now that a theocratic extremist replaced RBG? Make women property again to undo feminism, creating a real republic of Gilead. Remove all LGBTQ rights, and non-white immigration and close borders. You think the plan of this racist GOP permanent takeover isn't to go South Africa, or at this point reinstate feudalism and slavery as neo-reactionaries want. It must be resisted. The neo-Nazis want to break up the country into ethno-states and exterminate us. With the US far-right influenced by Dugin's fourth positionism, we are entering a multipolar world of federated fascist nations, all going alone with competing imperialisms like Europe before WW1. Syria was a precursor to that coming world war. From a New Zealand comrade, quote, So most of the online left in the US seem to have given up, not so much given up that Biden will win, or at least get the most votes, but that it'll mean anything. There will inevitably be a Trump self-coup, the newly stacked Supreme Court will give it their blessing, and the Dems will buckle and give in and will offer no resistance." Close quote. If the US loses its bourgeois democracy, so will the whole world. When Germany and Italy lost their democracy in the 30s, all the little countries of Southern and Eastern Europe took on dictatorships, one after another. Only the big capitalist democracies, Britain and France, stood up. There are no big capitalist democracies anymore to resist the slide to global fascism. Britain and Australia, in particular, are halfway to Trump fascism anyway. In this rerun of the 1940s, there would be no United States coming to save us. In fact, the United States will be coming to get us. My New Zealand comrade said, quote, I won't last long in that world, I would be in the second batch up against the wall, first will be those Muslims, indigenous peoples and African Americans who offer any resistance. I only have the skills of analysis and rhetoric with which I've spent five years trying to wake people up to the problem. But it really seems that the parts of the left who haven't slipped into total despair and apathy actually welcome the rise of fascism, because they just hate 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 those shit lib windem centrist dems so very, very much. It'll be funny when Trump drags Pelosi and Schumer to the camps, huh? Close quote. My problem with white radicals is they can sell out, become Nazis or yuppies. The rest of us don't have those options to move on from radical politics to big paychecks, suburbia, and nuclear families. I am getting very tired of white leftists acting like we don't have a violent fascist problem. Like I said, 
genocide is occurring, but these hipster honkies laugh, and support racist gun control, while the rest of us are being killed by fascists, and gunned down by police working with them. Let's just ignore the organizing armed fascists and go to a death in June concert. Quote, anti-fascism is so stupid, unquote, they say. Fuck the American left. We can't rely solely on politicians or the military to save us, if Trump refuses to leave. Some groups and unions planned, and trained, for the possibility of a Trump coup during the election. We would need to do fast organizing. Martial training, picket training, strike training needs to be fast-tracked and learned on our feet. Time to train and mobilize a general strike is pretty narrow, and would have to be learning while doing. So far there are anti-Trump protests, and sporadic acts of violence by Trumpists, and other aligned fascists. A terror attack was plotted against the counting location in Philadelphia. Armed white protesters trying to shut down counts are tolerated by police, under cover of open carry laws we all know would not be applied the same on POC and the left. The fascist has lost for now, and the next one may be far worse. Trump still has three months left to scorch the earth, and cling to power last minute. Trump is not only still contesting the election by refusing to concede, and pushing false conspiracy theories about how the ballots were illegal in his words, in a further attempt at staging a coup. A.G. Barr made the unprecedented move, in a memo, to order Justice Department prosecutors to investigate these false stories of voter irregularities, when the policy for 40 years has been to do investigations after an election is completely certified. The official in charge of handing the government baton over to the next administration is a politicized Trump crony refusing to do her job. Following Senator Mitch McChurtle's lead, the rest of the GOP is refusing to recognize the results of the election. The comically obvious false voter fraud claims, and failed lawsuits, are part of a scheme to delegitimize the election. They are now openly arguing for Republican legislators in five Biden states to pull a 2000 election and overturn the popular vote, reassigning the state electors to Trump and overturning the election. At the same time, Trump has been quietly replacing heads of the Pentagon, putting some disturbed deep state conspiracy believer general out of Dr. Strange Love in charge. Believer in the rapture and Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo shocked the media and public by refusing to recognize the election and smirked a comment about making a smooth transition to a second Trump term. As journalist David Sirota pointed out on this, quote they are trying to normalize the idea that regardless of how Americans actually voted, a second Trump term is inevitable because state legislatures and Congress will ultimately hand him the Electoral College. As it appears the Democratic Party are doing nothing about this, and Biden is ignoring this while setting up a transition team, 
America may spend the last three months of Trump term in a constitutional crisis where Trump refuses to cede power. We aren't completely out of the woods yet, but the cowardice and corruption of the political class is on full display. Unquote. As it's been shown, our task ahead will be to simultaneously prepare for increased far-right and fascist terrorism, and convince comfortable liberal people not to go back to brunch so to speak, after Biden's inauguration. There has been a successful operation to launder right-wing, or at least anti-anti-Trump, ideas into the left, same as 2016 and these assholes are on our side, in the class reductionist anti-id poll dirtbag left, Jacobin, Chapo etc. who care more about owning libs than keeping this, really existing, democratic republic from collapsing into fascism. This milieu of edgy democratic socialists is a dead end for newer leftists, turned on to radical politics thanks to Sanders. As our editor has pointed out, quote, we have to base build and grow a cosmopolitan socialist movement, strictly opposed to reactionaries and nationalism. Mega chuds might shut up, but I think a lot of them are going to be soaked up by the red-brown and reactionary left. We can't allow them to ideologically poison the well like the fake leftists have already. The alt-right pipeline is going to channel into the nationalist left." Unquote. I can't agree more. We now need to work with everybody, including liberals, progressive and everyone in the working class. Minus Stalinists and fascists, that is. And the questionable leftist contrarians need to get over themselves, and get out of the way. Now for our Asia-Pacific Local Area Network report, in Nam or Victoria, so-called Australia, poor socialists have been elected to local councils, Sue Bolton for Socialist Alliance, Jorge Volcaira for Victorian Socialists, as well as Stephen Jolly and Bridget O'Brien, all won seats. Jolly was previously a candidate for the Victorian Socialists until he was expelled due to an abuse investigation. If you're interested in an in-depth analysis of the Victorian Socialist communication strategy, in October the Triple C Journal on Communication, Capitalism and Critique published my article Socialist Macro Sect in the Digital Age the Victorian Socialist Strategy for Assembling a Counterpublic and is published under my birth name of Ian Anderson. Also in Nam, Victoria, so-called Australia, the government has attacked the Jabwarung Protection Camp. We've reported on Jabwarung before in our September 2019 episode, but in short, this was a struggle to protect indigenous ancestor trees from a planned highway expansion. The standoff with police has been going on for over a year, and now the state government apparently took the opportunity presented by COVID to clear out the camp. So to quote the Jabwaran crowdfunding page on chuffed.org, on Monday, October 26th, 
the majestic and sacred 350 year old directions tree which has been under threat for over 800 days was cut down by roadwork contractors the loss of this ancient tree which carried the spirit of Japurang ancestors is unspeakable Japurang people are traumatized and in mourning in response to this devastation protectors were immediately mobilized to prevent further destruction proceeding many protectors climbed into trees to prevent them being cut down and locked on to structures at the embassy. One brave protector stayed in the 800-year-old grandfather tree for three days and two nights without food or water, while police continually prevented any supplies getting to him. Over 50 protectors were arrested, charged and fined. In 24 hours, over 250,000 in fines were issued by the Victoria Police. Protectors were issued $5,000 in fines each under COVID laws. Close quote. The protest has now moved into the streets. Meanwhile, across the Tasman in Aotearoa, New Zealand, you may have heard we recently had an election and two referendums. On the plus side, the euthanasia referendum won. On the minus side, the weed referendum lost. And somewhere in the middle, Jacinda Ardern won. I've already given my opinion on Jacinda's win on the Green Left podcast, so we're going to just replay that now. For our program for Green Left this week, we are going to be having a discussion with Annie White, who is an activist with Fight Back New Zealand about the recent New Zealand election result, which has seen the Labour government led by Jacinda Ardern win an outright majority off the back of its handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I guess to start off this discussion, Annie, um, what can you tell us, I guess, about this the electoral result in New Zealand, I guess, and its significance? Yeah, so as you said, obviously we've had uh, Jacinda's Labour Party uh, get a landslide, landslide victory. This is pretty historic in terms of the scale of the victory. So it was the biggest uh, shift in votes in a century. Uh, and it's also historic under MMP, which is the uh, mixed member proportional system which is a system that has generally allowed minor parties to have more influence. Uh, but this is the first time uh, that a party under MMP is likely to be governing alone without even, potentially without even confidence in supply agreements or anything. And I've heard suggestions on the left that this means they can better implement a kind of a left-wing agenda. But I think the opposite is the case because what you know, if you look at the MMP uh, and what MMP means, it was brought in essentially because both Labour and national governments were introducing neoliberal reforms, and there was a kind of a popular support for proportional representation to curb the parties. So now, with this kind of historic landslide for Labour, where they've managed to win over the middle, they're not going to want to to lose the middle. And they're also, they also have no reason to be accountable to, for example, the Greens. They don't need the Greens. So yes, it means they can kind of do what they want. 
but it does seem like uh, what they want is to govern for the middle. So, yeah, it's a it's a historic win, but I think probably a historic win for the centre rather than a swing to the left. Okay, well, going in from that, um, because I guess from my understanding, as a result of this, Labor now has an increased majority. And I guess looking at the last kind of um, election, there was this whole thing where the New Zealand government was criticised heavily because they had to, to govern, they had to get in a coalition with New Zealand First, which is, from my understanding, uh, a, a kind of right-wing kind of nationalist party, almost akin to sort of one nation in Australia. And I guess... I want to kind of hear you kind of expand a bit more on this. How was um, the Jacinta Ardern government able to kind of win over this kind of centre uh, in terms of its support base? Give us a bit more of what the kind of implicate, political implications of this increased majority, which you've alluded to. Yeah, so, I mean, the winning over of the centre, in large part, it's a matter of very competent crisis management, uh, some symbolic commitments, and uh, an unwillingness to take any really radical measures. So in in the 2017 election, they came in talking about uh, climate change as the nuclear-free moment of our generation, but they haven't really made any sort of radical changes uh, that are needed to address climate change. Uh, whereas, you know, they have one over, for example, the, the South Island, all of the rural seats in the South Island party voted Labour, which is quite unusual. So, so they have managed to win over kind of middle voters, even conservative voters. And I think they're very aware of that. So, you know, on the, on the election night, there was a lot of talk of governing for all New Zealanders. And this came not just from Jacinda, uh, but also, for example, from uh, Grant Robertson, who's a who's a prominent MP within the party. They both used this phrase of governing for all New Zealanders. Uh, the press very much picked that up and and ran with it. Uh, and I think that very much indicates that by saying we will not scare the horses, you know, we will govern for the centre. Uh, you could also see it in in Jacinda's acceptance speech. Uh, when she, uh, she sort of talked about how the world is polarizing and we need different sides to listen to each other. She basically said the left needs to be willing to listen to the right. So it's, yeah, very much, uh, the, the line has been that they've been able to win over the center. They've probably gained votes actually from National, the, the right wing opposition party. So uh, they don't want to lose those those middle voters. That's that's kind of very much the the message that's being hammered home. Yeah. Well, I guess that gets into I guess the next question, which is because going, coming from someone who's in um, Melbourne at the moment, one of the kind of things that has I guess been quite striking about um, Jacinda Ardern's sort of government has been its popularity and success in terms of handling, I guess, the COVID-19 pandemic, and you could argue that it's one of the best performing countries in that context. But what has, in in that context, what has really been the response of the right to this electoral result, especially since I have been reading some criticism to the right um, that indicates some criticism of the lockdown measures that New Zealand um, did, especially in relation to the um, classic economy? (laughs) 
Yeah, so I definitely think it's true that this government's handling of COVID has been very competent. You know, it's been the best in the Anglosphere uh, in terms of just basic public health measures and being willing to apply some restrictions. And the criticisms of the right opposition have been pretty incoherent. So it's sort of been the usual uh, the lockdown is too restrictive. Next minute, it's not restrictive enough. Uh, the borders are too politely, too, too, sorry, too tightly policed and then not tightly policed enough. They're real, they've really been on the attack in a fairly incoherent way. And I think even a lot of people on the right didn't like the, uh, the last leader of the national party, uh, Judith Collins, who has always been kind of an attack dog and pretty vicious. Uh, so yeah, she, I think, uh, Collins was kind of able to hold on to the sort of more militant elements of Nash, the National Party, but wasn't really able to, to win over the middle. So I think it's, yeah, uh, Ardern, she's really con, uh, convincingly sold herself as a, as a competent crisis manager. But then, you know, if you look at some of the measures, there's, there are some issues with them. I mean, uh, one of them is that they've kind of set up a two-tier benefit system where people who lost work as a result of COVID uh, get get more money than people who didn't have work prior to that. So there's a kind of a deserving and undeserving poor element to how they've how they've designed it. They've increased police powers, which I think it's you know, you can see, you can see why with the need for lockdown measures, but it potentially sets sets a bad precedent. Uh, there's been problems in terms of how how migrant workers had to deal with the situation, and uh, now they're introducing charges for uh, returning New Zealanders. So it's it's not necessarily a very equitable handling of the crisis. But I mean, it's certainly a competent handling in terms of just basic public health measures. And I think what we're seeing is there's this real worship of Jacinda internationally. And I think it's just, it's, to me, it's like an index of how bad things are elsewhere. You know, the fact that we've got someone like Donald Trump in the highest office in the world, really, uh, somebody who's flagrantly racist, uh, incompetent and ignorant. So just some kind of baseline competence and public health measures, which should should be really universal, uh, are taken as as exceptional. So I guess the thing, the the point is not necessarily that this is an incompetent government or what have you. It's simply that it's not a government that's willing to take any radical measures. It is a government of the centre and the middle. And I don't think people should have illusions about about the nature of this government. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the right that it was very, it was surprisingly self-reflective on the night, actually, that they were talking, uh, the National Party were talking about their own failure, uh, their own lack of discipline. A lot of, a lot of talking heads were kind of prodding them to admit that Judith Collins, the leader, was part of the problem, but they, they, nobody actually stuck the knife in. But yeah, it just has, it's been a, a negative campaign. It drove a lot of people away. And I think they're kind of aware of that. Uh, and, and people are just aware that this government has handled COVID competently. That's how they were able to win over 
right wing and middle voters. Yeah. Well, going um respond to one of the I guess the points you kind of raised there. I'm kind of interested in I guess knowing in what the actual track record of the Jacinda Ardern administration is from a left wing perspective because I guess yeah I I noticed it as well uh, amongst the kind of left in um in Australia or even internationally. Uh, Jacinda Ardern is kind of like put forward as this, you know, amazing left-wing leader um, that we should all aspire to kind of be. And, of course, there's even been some comparisons I've even noticed from sort of UK Labour circles, which almost somewhat see Jacinda Ardern as almost equivalent to kind of Jeremy Corbyn. So I I guess want to kind of hear a bit more detail on what is the actual track record from a left-wing perspective. Yeah, well, well, in terms of the UK comparison, I think the thing to consider there is that she started out her career working for Tony Blair. So, I mean, I think she's maybe comparable to Corbyn in the sense that she has a strong, uh, she has a sort of a, a dedicated following, a much larger dedicated following, but still, you know, is a, is a figure who is able to inspire and mobilize people. But her politics are certainly not Corbyn's. They're not that kind of traditional social social democratic politics. Uh, and I mean, in 2017, she very much came in with lines like, "Again, this is the nuclear the uh, that climate change is the nuclear free moment of our generation," which people may not be aware. New Zealand banned uh, nuclear shipping in the 80s, so that's what that was a reference to. But you know, to take that example, the the example of climate change, uh, this government introduced the the zero carbon bill, but that is not really remotely adequate. They quite actively sought the input of the National Party. Uh, so basically, it's a it's a climate bill that's approved by the right, and because of that, it's inherently compromised. So it embedded the emissions trading approach, which uh, which people will be aware uh, has created new markets and not been able to curb emissions. Uh, it excluded major emitters. Uh, it was non-binding. So it really was completely inadequate for this, but essentially species threatening situation we have right now. Uh, it was really much more of a of a symbolic commitment rather than rather than being willing to take on you know extractive capital agricultural capital and make the sort of changes that are actually required to to prevent runaway climate change so yeah that's just one example it's been similar with indigenous rights so there's a, a land struggle called Ihumatau uh, which is basically against uh, against property developers and for a uh, a Māori kinship group, uh, iwi, to to have control of that land, and Jacinda has refused to take any explicit position on that. She's refused to p- even visit the site when petitioned to do so. Uh, she's really just not been willing to up- upset the horses on that and other issues. I mean, the Christchurch shooting is another example where. You know, she was praised for wearing the the headscarf, which I can understand. And again, in an international situation where you have someone like Donald Trump leading the free world, it seems 
pretty exceptional for someone to simply respect Muslim customs at a funeral. But that, I think, is just a sign of how low the bar is, that simply respecting the customs at a funeral is really exceptional. But what she did after March 15th was actually beef up police powers, give police more guns. Uh, fortunately, that trial with of police having guns kind of collapsed and uh, has been reversed after after popular opposition. But uh, yeah, I definitely think on a whole range of, of policy areas, it's been a very compromised government and very unwilling to take any radical measures. Uh, and I think now that they're talking about governing for all New Zealanders and they're very aware that they, you know, have this base in the middle, uh, they're going to be, con- they're going to continue to be unwilling to, to really scare the horses in any way or to make any radical changes. Unless, you know, unless their hand is forced. I mean, again, their, their hand was forced on, uh, the arming of police where there was, uh, after Black Lives Matter, there was uh, quite a significant uh, uprising uh, that was also also challenging uh, police violence, and it had in the introduction of guns had been heavily criticised by Māori and others. So that was one thing where they were they were actually forced to to back down and not not sort of increase the arming of the police. So yeah, I think the only the only possibility is that their hand is forced by, you know, by popular pressure because it's they're not going to be curbed by the Greens, for example, in Parliament now that they're going to be governing alone. Well, that brings up, I guess, the next question is, what is, I guess, the position of the left and, I guess, the broader social movements in relation to this um, new election? Um, what are kind of some of the perspectives in terms of, in terms of how they would um, analyse this result? Well, uh, there, I mean, there are people who called for a just in the vote, obviously, and people who didn't. Uh, I mean, I guess it depends who you're talking about in terms of the left. I think on what you could call the broad left, you know, not necessarily the sect left or sort of Marxist left, uh, she's definitely beloved. I mean, it's often been quite hard to criticize uh criticize her because uh of the sort of adulation she receives uh and I think for a lot of the smaller groups uh that does kind of pose a bit of a question you know how to how to respond to that constructively i mean but um yeah I mean I think on the broad left uh there's a real uh people are definitely buy into the whole the whole Jacinda narrative uh and she has you know she has an appealing personality she's a she's a competent crisis manager but I just think we we have to be fully aware that she's she's not going to take any any radical measures and any attempt to compare her to Bernie or or to Jeremy Corbyn I think is is not not really accurate. Uh, I don't I, I don't think she represents that kind of polarizing politics that would be willing to frighten capital or implement major reforms. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I think the left, as say, it's the broad left is is very sympathetic, uh, and the kind of more 
uh, hard left is is kind of trying to figure out how to. That brings us, I guess, to the guess next question is, um, and this will be especially of interest to our listeners. Um, what are real? What are some of the current sort of issues and I guess grievances that are currently I guess driving kind of social movements in New Zealand right now? Like from my um from my knowledge, there's currently this um referendum around legalising cannabis that's currently going on. I'm not sure if that has been finished up yet. And I guess what is the position of this newly elected government in relation to some of these grievances? Um, is this government likely to um address them? Um, what what is the kind of what is sort of the balance, I guess, of forces there? Well, uh, you mentioned the uh, the cannabis referendum, and I think that's a good example of what I've been saying. Uh, in that, uh, in that, Jacinda has said she she is not going to uh, announce how she voted in the cannabis referendum. Uh, so, you know, even that, which is not exactly a particularly radical position, I would say now, like a, a, a lot of states have have legalized marijuana but even with that she's she's not willing to to take a public position uh but in terms of movements i mean certainly historically and through to today the uh maori sovereignty movement has been a really significant element of new zealand politics uh so yeah that goes back well it goes back to colonization but uh you know, you could also talk about the the Māori landmarch in the seventies, uh, and yeah, it's it has had an institutional impact as well, where there's a flawed treaty settlement process that uh, that has been really a concession to that to that social movement. Uh, and I mean, I mentioned uh, Ihu Tau, which is uh, again a struggle against against property development of indigenous land. That triggered uh, protests in in a number of cities. Uh, so you had uh, Dunedin, which is on the opposite side of the country, and you know a, a fairly white uh, area in the south. Uh, and in that in that in Dunedin, the entire city was shut down by a protest. And you know you had large actions in Wellington also, and up at Ihumatau itself, which is near Auckland. Uh, there were protesters clash, clashing with police, so that was quite a quite a polarizing moment in about mid 2019. Uh, so there's you know there's there's a certain amount of depth that the Māori sovereignty movement has uh, that some other kind of I guess progressive and left forces don't don't really have. They don't have the same kind of embedding in communities. And Jacinda has just been very vague with that kind of thing. I mean, her statements about Ihumatau are things like, we are here when the important conversations are happening, we are listening, which is kind of, you know, she could, uh, if she was a very different kind of political leader, she could just come out and say, this is Maori land and they have a right to decide how it's used. Uh, but obviously she's not that kind of a political leader. Uh, and I mean, I mentioned Black Lives Matter, how that, uh, inspired, uh, also protests in every, in every city in New Zealand. Uh, and that kind of ties in with a, uh, also relatively recent, uh, movement around 
prison abolition and and decarceration. So uh, there's a uh, there's a group uh, of people uh, people against prisons, Aotearoa, which has uh, played a pretty significant role. I mean, it's not it's it's a relatively small group, but it's had a reasonably big impact uh, in campaigning around around prisoners' rights and ultimately for prison abolition. Uh, and that, uh, with, with the Black Lives Matter protest setting off protests in New Zealand as well, uh, that, uh, that certainly had an impact. And as I say, uh, uh, the attempt to beef up police powers after, after the March 15th attack wasn't successful, uh, uh, largely because of public pressure. Um, yeah, thanks for that, Annie. Um, this has been a very informative interview um, that I hope our listeners um, have enjoyed. Anyway, I think we will conclude um, this program now. <laughs>